0: Let's turn in our Bibles once again to the book of Isaiah, chapter 41 this evening, as we continue our journey through the book of Isaiah together. We saw as we went through chapter 40 that God was making a a strong contrast between His greatness and His power and His awesomeness in comparison or in contrast to both the frailty of man, and we'll see also as we continue to journey forward here through chapter 41 and going onward, also the greatness of God in comparison to false gods and those that would claim to be gods or idols, things that people would prop up and choose to worship instead of the one true and living God, that those things are vain and they render no help as compared to, we're going to see in chapter 41, and uh, I want you to take note that three different times the Holy Spirit states within this chapter a declaration from God, which is a great encouragement, and that's three times God says in chapter 41, I will help you. And that is something I think that any one of those words is worthy of meditation. If you get nothing else out of the chapter, that four-word phrase, I will help you, I think you could emphasize any one of those words, that perhaps no one else has helped you, maybe no one else can help you, maybe you can't even help yourself, but God is able to say, but I will help you. Or maybe it seems that nothing at all can help you, but God is able to say, I will, I will help you. And perhaps maybe we think that, well, God can do this for others, or it seems like God's done that for others, but my situation, my unique circumstance, and perhaps God would say, I, I will help you, you, I, I can help you. Regardless of what you've gone through, regardless of what you've experienced, again, one of the things God displayed about himself, about his greatness, even in chapter 40, was that he is the everlasting God. And we mentioned how that describes that he is the God who has incredible experience, way more experience than we do as humans or any human being on this earth who could possibly endeavor to render help to us. Uh, God has been The eternally existent God, he existed before creation, the heavens and the earth existed. He existed before humanity even got started. And from the first human being, Adam, all the way through to this present day in 2024, God has been helping people through all types of different struggles and hardships and situations that we journey through on this earth. And particularly the things at times we really do need help with because we live in a broken world that is cursed by sin, which brings about struggles and pain and hardships and all the things that go along with that in our lives. In fact, as we concluded chapter 40, we saw those beautiful, uh, very familiar verses where God's describing how he gives power to the weak and to those who have no might, he increases their strength. And it's almost as if he's encouraging us at times that when we do falter, or when we fail, or when we faint from time to time, and we all do, that God wants us to be aware that that's not out of the ordinary. Remember, he said, look, even youths faint. In other words, those even at peak performance who have the greatest strength, capacity, energy level, God said, look, even among those who are in their peak uh, of capability, he says, they even at times faint, they even at times fall, but those who wait on the Lord, who intertwine and join their life together with the Lord, waiting upon him expectantly, will always be able to renew their strength. God will exchange his power for our weakness and help us and and, and get us through whatever it is, whether we're walking through something We're trying to soar over top of a a great crisis or a tragedy that his help will be with us. Now, as he moves into chapter 41 and starts again, as I said, addressing sort of this contrast of the uselessness of idols, it seems he begins to kind of move in this direction as he calls now the nations to sort of summon themselves and come together uh, with God in court, chapter 41, verse 1 says, keep silence before me, O coastlands, and often that phrase coastlands is a term used synonymously just for the nations, come silent before me, you coastlands, and let the people, he says, renew their strength, almost seems to play on uh, words from the prior verse, the last one of chapter 40, where God said, if you wait on me, you will renew your strength because I give power to the weak. But he says, uh, you can try to renew your own strength by just mustering up your own uh, energy or or just kind of gritting and trying to bear through it. And he says, so if, if you think you can renew your own strength to get yourself through, he says, you can try that. But he says, verse one, let them come near, let them speak, let us come near together. For judgment. So God in his greatness is kind of summoning the distant lands here, the distant nations to enter into, if you would, the scene here, sort of like his courtroom to be held accountable as the superior judge ruling all of mankind and that they should reverently, the idea there is stand in silence before him as the great judge and the great majesty And again, that they should renew whatever strength they can muster up to offer their absolute best case in trying to come together and plead before God of why they don't need him or need his existence or that their idols are good enough, yet despite their best efforts, they're going to be left guilty as charged before God, and ultimately uh, their failure to honor God will be evident, and he will indict them for that. Notice he goes on, verse 2, to say, and who... The idea is, who is it who raised up one from the East, who in righteousness called him to his feet, and that should be capitalized because that's a reference to God's feet being called to the feet of God, to the feet of the Lord, who gave the nations before him, who made him to be ruler over kings, who gave them as the dust to his sword, as driven stubble to his bow, who pursued them and passed safely by the way that he had not gone with his feet. Who has performed and done it, God says, calling the generations from the beginning, I, the Lord, am the first, and with the last, I am he. Now, in verses 2 through 4 here, particularly as he begins in verse 2, God here is predicting that there is a ruler that he would be raising up By his sovereign work among the nations that he would raise up as his actual servant submitting to God's ultimate plan. And who is being referred to here in verse 2 is none other than the Persian king named Cyrus. And when we get a few chapters ahead, God will specifically reference Cyrus by name. Well, in advance before Cyrus was even born, God already knew that he would be born, what his name would be, that he would ultimately become a king of an empire, that he would come and he would conquer the Babylonians, be the next world empire afterwards, and that God would use King Cyrus to ultimately liberate his people the southern kingdom of Judah, who went into captivity in Babylon for 70 years, that God would raise up Cyrus as his servant. Remember, after 70 years in captivity, Jeremiah prophesied that they would then return back. Uh, And Cyrus would be the instrument, even as a pagan king, to serve God's purposes. This strong ruler would conquer, he describes here in verse 2, that he would be raised up from the east, coming from Persia, King Cyrus, who it says, verse two, in righteousness, God has called him to his feet. The idea is God has called Cyrus, even though Cyrus wasn't a worshiper of Yahweh God, he was a pagan king, but yet God would sovereignly call him. The idea here at his feet is to be at the foot of the throne of the true king, the king of the universe, the king of kings, God, to serve God's purposes. He would become God's instrument. He would become the one that God would use. Again, the book of Proverbs tells us that the heart of the king is in the hand of the Lord, and like rivers of water, he can turn it whatever way he wishes. And God is more than able to accomplish his sovereign purposes at times, not only through those who are yielded to him, but even through pagan kings who live in rebellion to God, that don't know God. God is still more than able to superintend to overrule, to still orchestrate his divine purposes. And God did this with Cyrus. He's referring to how, verse 2, God was the one that gave the nations before him and made him to rule over kings, would make him the next ruler of a world empire after Babylon would be the world empire, who gave the nations as dust to Cyrus's sword, verse 2, and driven stubble to his bow so that he could pursue them safely by a way that he not yet was familiar with, and God wants to make it very evident behind all those things from start to finish was none other than God himself, and that's what he's declaring in verse 4, who has performed and done this, and God wants to make it very clear these weren't just random events, random circumstances historically, you know you've perhaps also heard heard that statement before that history would better be described as his story that god himself using the earth as his stage is ultimately orchestrating ultimately his plans and his purposes no human rebellion is ever going to overrule god's ultimate divine purpose and plan and from start to finish it has all been a work of god god raised up cyrus gave him power, gave him momentum, allowed him to start conquering other nations and other territories, rose him up to be the next world empire, allowed him to conquer Babylon, and then the Jews were absorbed under the reign of King Cyrus, and we know Ezra chapter 1, that God then moves the heart of Cyrus at a set point to then allow the Jewish people to go back to their homeland to begin to Reacclimate themselves in their own land, and to restore and to rebuild their worship life in the temple of God there back in Jerusalem. And God said, "Who's the one that's performed all that and done it?" God says, "It's me. I'm the one that accomplished that for my people and for my purposes." Calling, He says, even generations from the beginning. The idea there is even before a new generation comes, God already knows the next generation. You know, we give generations names, and we talk about the problems with this generation and that generation. God says, I know what generation's coming before it even gets there, and, and I've got plans for each generation. In fact, the Bible tells us in Acts 17 that, you know, we, in a sense, are born not only and, and put where we're supposed to be on the globe geographically, but even for the particular time in human history that we're supposed to be on the earth as human beings, For the best possible chance that A, we can come to know God, and B, that God would fulfill his purposes through us, even as the Bible says David served the Lord in his generation, so did Cyrus and many others as well. Now, you notice that phrase there at the end of verse 4, the Lord refers to himself as I, the Lord, am the first, and with the last, I am he. Now, Yahweh God is saying this about himself, referring to himself as the first And the last. Now, in the book of Revelation, in chapter 1, and then we're going to see again in chapter 22, Jesus Himself, our Lord Jesus, speaks of Himself taking that exact same title as the first and the last, which answers something very clearly for us. If Yahweh, God, the one true living God in the Old Testament, says, I am the first and I am the last, and then Jesus Christ declares of himself more than once as an autobiographical statement, I am the first and I am the last, then that very clearly proves to us that Jesus is Yahweh God. It's a declaration of our Lord's deity that he was declaring that he was Yahweh God manifested in the flesh by taking that same title unto himself. Verse 5 goes on to say, In the coastlands saw it, and feared, and the ends of the earth were afraid. They drew near, and came. Now, the picture here is as the nation saw the you know the, the the mounting power rising up, coming in to begin to conquer and to take over the world empire. That as the nation saw what was happening, the ends of the earth, all around the globe, people saw this threat this impending threat coming against them, and it caused globally the earth to be struck with fear. It says, the ends of the earth, everyone on earth became afraid as they saw the rise and the conquest of Cyrus, king of Persia, and they began to get fearful. They could see on the horizon something dangerous is coming. There's an impending thing that is a threat to all of us on all the globe, And in connection to that, they seeing the danger and the threat of what was unfolding, look what humanity does. They rallied together to try and survive the threat. It tells us here, the ends of the earth were afraid and they were fearing. So they drew together and came and said, verse 6, everyone helped his neighbor and said to his brother, be of good courage. So you're going to see what happens is what's being described here. Humanity assumed, as they saw this impending threat that everyone on the globe was afraid of, this dangerous thing that could harm and destroy us, they thought, look, if we just rally together globally, if we just all unify and come together, if we rally together, we can survive this threat. And humanity assumed that if they unified, they could just work together and overcome the world problem. And somehow they could survive this thing that everyone was afraid of. Now, of course, this was a vain attempt to stop the problem that was much larger than what they could control. But isn't it interesting how when something exists or something's on the horizon or something arises that causes everyone on the globe to become fearful? how amazing all of a sudden humanity thinks if we all just rallied together and we make everyone do the same thing. And if we just all come together and encourage, we can beat this. We can survive this, but we've got to come together. Everyone's got to cooperate and we've all got to do the same thing and somehow we can overcome it. So it says they rallied together together. Everyone to help his neighbor, everyone do whatever we can each do. Let's all think about one another and help one another. We got to survive this thing we're afraid of. So the craftsman encouraged the goldsmith and he who smooths with a hammer, verse seven, inspired him who struck with the anvil. They each had different parts in building this idolatrous God they were going to worship. They, they said, it's ready for the soldering. And then he fastened it with pegs that it might not totter. So they came together, hey, let's, let, let's create this object, let's create this image. Everyone was encouraged to create what they could via their own resources and ideas for deliverance, designing things according to their own human efforts and ideas, thinking they can save themselves and they can restore stability. Let's create this thing let's fasten it down, we don't want it to be unstable, make sure it doesn't totter. And the idea here is they were doing everything they could in their human efforts, in their own ideas to create something that everyone could utilize somehow and look to for help and put trust in, and it would somehow spare them and it could restore stability to what everyone was terrified about. Now, you can draw your own applications from that. But isn't it interesting how it's amazing how when fear strikes, humanity has this sense of coming together, but what they are doing, of course, it was gonna be utterly worthless to help them because it was beyond their human capacity to solve. This was not something that they could solve themselves. For all of human history, human beings have thought if, if we just rally together, we can save ourselves, we can fix things, we can stop things, we can reverse things, when the reality is so often things are so far over our heads and out of our hands, and the only help possible is to turn to God, not to turn to one another. But that's often what people do instead. We, we People turn to one another in humanity and think that we can fix our own problems. And here, they were doing this. They created this whole image, this whole God. They fastened it down. Hey, I, I fixed my part. Now you solder your part and you do this. Okay, and then we got a guy. He can fasten things down better than anybody else. He'll really keep us stable. And they were all kind of doing their part. Verse eight says, but you, Israel, God says to his people. In other words, he expects different of them than the people who were in the world that did not know any different, but you Israel are my servant. In other words, God's declaring to Israel as his chosen people, you are to serve my purposes. You, you exist for a different reason on the globe. You should not be behaving like everyone else. You, you're to serve my purposes. You are Israel. Notice again, God calls Israel my servant. As we talked about Sunday, God has unique, specific plans in human history. His whole redemptive plan is tied up to the nation of Israel and the Jewish people in everything he's orchestrating through them. And here he calls Israel my servant, Jacob, whom I have chosen, the descendants of Abraham. My friend, you whom I have taken from the ends of the earth, God says, and called from its farthest regions, and said to you, You are my servant, I have chosen you and not cast you away. So again, God perhaps here making inference to the fact of how though they were scattered when the Assyrians came in and conquered the northern kingdom, and then Babylon conquered them, and they were dispersed to the farthest parts of the earth. In in the Babylonian captivity, God says, but look, I'm going to call you from them far away regions, and I'm going to restore you back because I have plans and purposes for you nationally, and I have chosen you as my servant, and God had made promises to the nation of Israel that he would fulfill. Now, I want you to take notice in verse 8 there, as God refers to them as Israel in the initial part of the verse, my servant. And then he switches terms and he calls them Jacob, whom I have chosen. Now, remember, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. Jacob's name, ultimately, after he wrestles with God, his name is changed to Israel, which means prince of God or governed by God. And that was after God broke him and God orchestrated his purposes in his life specifically. But whenever we see God use these names interchangeably, you'll notice that At times, God will use the title Jacob for his people Israel nationally, and he's referring to them in a national sense here. And when he does, he's referring to this reality of the act of the grace of God was the whole sole purpose why they've become his chosen people. Again, because if you think of what Jacob was like in the Old Testament, though he was used by God and and called by God as a patriarch, you remember that Jacob, he, he was quite a scoundrel. I mean, he was quite a manipulator and a conniver. He was not the kind of guy that you would say had a merit-based earned scholarship to be God's chosen person through the promises of Israel. But what God is trying to do at times when he refers to Israel as Jacob is he's reminding them that they are completely unworthy. There's nothing in and of themselves that was special They were chosen because of God's grace and God's sovereignty. So he says, look, the idea there is, Israel, you're my servant. Though you're unworthy, I have chosen you. And you didn't deserve it. But because of grace, I chose you in kindness. And look, to an extent, that's true of all of our lives. God has taken over our life and now rules over us. He makes us his servant. But let us never forget, even though God's taken over our life and now we're governed by God and we're his child and we get to serve him, that ultimately the only reason why we belong to him and have any of the privilege that we do in our Christian life now is because though we were unworthy like Jacob, God chose us in his graciousness, in his kindness, and he drew us to himself he calls them also the descendants of Abraham, the Lord says, my friend. Now, what an incredible title there, Abraham, my friend. You know, think of what special status that refers to. And notice, he's, he's calling Abraham God's friend. He, he's not saying, Abraham, God is your friend. The emphasis here is that God is looking upon Abraham and saying, of Abraham and to Abraham, I consider you my friend. Now, that's an incredible status elevator right there. Because if you would just ponder for a moment, the Almighty God looking upon Abraham as a friend unto himself, think about what is meant by referring to someone as your friend. When you think of someone, you say, that that person is my friend. He's a friend to me she's a good friend to me. Think about what that implies. That implies things to us, right? Like that person is incredibly trustworthy. They're loyal to me. They are with me in good times and bad times. They're someone that I can depend upon. They're someone I have intimate relationship with. When we say someone is a friend, that's what we think of. And imagine, this is what God is saying of Abraham. God was referring to Abraham, his servant, as someone that God looked upon. And what an incredible, you know, honor that God says, I can trust you, Abraham. Abraham, you're loyal to me. And, you know, Abraham was the man of the altar. When you look at his life, you always see Abraham building altars. His heart was connected to worship. Worship. He wasn't a perfect man. His faith wasn't even perfect, but he was someone who, like a loyal friend to God, had intimate relationship with him. You know, the beautiful thing, of course, we know in John chapter 15, Jesus says to all of us as his disciples, I no longer call you servants, but friends. And what an amazing thing to think that God Almighty would want to have that degree of relationship with us. And, you know, may we be a good friend to the Lord. You know, James says to us that friendship with the world, the world system, what it represents, friendship with the world is enmity against God, but Jesus says, "No, I don't want you even to be my servant, I want you to relate to me as my friend. I just want you to be loyal to me. I want you to be someone who I can rely upon. And again, that he wants to be friendly with us and have that degree of close intimacy with us, with us in the hardest of times, reliable, that mutual friendship between us and the Lord. What an incredible privilege that, that really is. Now, chapter 41, verse 10 gives to us maybe one, again, of the more popular and well-known verses in the book of Isaiah. Uh, he says here, verse 10, To his people, fear not, for I am with you. Now, what God's doing here, he's addressing his people in these verses in light of the fears that we saw earlier amongst humanity with the rise of the Persian Empire and them conquering uh, the the Babylonian empire. And again, before King Cyrus released them, there were natural fears. Great, here comes the next world empire, the Medo-Persian empire. What that gonna mean? The nations were afraid. Even God's people were having a degree of fear. And so God, in light of the fears among humanity, he addresses his people by saying to them in the midst of what was a legitimate fear. And look, fear is a legitimate thing. And, and we should never set that aside, try and be hyper-spiritual, act like it's you know, something that we're never going to be afraid, that nothing makes us fearful. I mean, that, that's just, really, that's foolishness. Fear is a, in fact a healthy thing at times that keeps us from doing things that aren't good, right? It's fear that keeps you, when you walk up to the edge of a steep cliff, a little bit more aware and on your toes and kind of making sure nobody's behind you, going to push you or, and, and makes you, it's fear that protects you, right? So fear serves a valuable purpose in our life, the fear of God, the fear of certain things. Fear can have a healthy, appropriate measure in our lives, but fear also, when taken out of balance, can be something that can become very destructive and unhealthy in our lives. The Bible says the fear of man is a snare, but he who trusts the Lord is saved. God says, I didn't give you a spirit of fear, but of power, love, and of sound mind. And so fear, when it begins to rule over us or conquer us, and it begins to dominate us, the emotion of fear, then it's something that actually can cross over and become a very unhealthy thing, a very destructive thing, and that would stumble us from God's ideal and God's best. And God can see his people are afraid. There was a legitimate thing happening among Uh, You know, the, 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 the nations at that time, globally, there were reasons to be afraid, but God says unto his people, to them, fear not, and here's his reasoning, for I am with you. Yes, there's a legitimate thing making everyone scared, but God says, here's what you know that people in the world don't know. My presence is with you. I'm greater than the thing you're afraid of. I'm stronger than it. I'm more powerful. I'm in control of it. I can overrule. I can shield you. I can protect you. I can help you. And so God says, I don't want you to be living in fear and driven by fear and dominated by fear because God says, I'm with you. My presence is with you. It's the same way with like a, a little child that they may be afraid of something. And, you know, I think of when our girls were younger and be a thunderstorm or something going on and they'd come running into the bedroom. Oh, daddy, I'm scared or whatever. And 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 it was amazing how all of a sudden the storm didn't stop. But when they were then with me, all of a sudden the same thing that made them afraid, they then felt secure. They weren't as afraid And all it was, was the presence of their father that just somehow assured them, oh, if dad's with me, now all of a sudden I don't have to be as afraid, right? And that's the same idea there. The circumstances may not necessarily change, but the the awareness of the presence of God is what diminishes the fear. It's what allows us to face the fears and not be overcome by them. So he says, fear not for I am with you. Be not dismayed. And the idea of dismayed, Is basically a a term there that kind of just describes to be utterly in despair. And and the phrase speaks of of desperately looking around, searching for solutions. The idea, someone's who's dismayed, the Hebrews, like they're they're in panic and they're just searching all over, grasping for answers, looking for solutions. They're just dismayed and and there's, what am I going to do? What am I going to do? And they're looking at this and they're trying to find that. And God says, I don't want you to be doing that. Just look up. God, you don't need to be dismayed and looking all over the place trying to come up with solutions. God says, just look to me. Again, why? What does he reemphasize in case it was missed the first time? For I am your God. I'm with you. I am your God. And another reason he tells them they don't need to be afraid is because he's given promises unto his people, promises that we can rely on and that he has the power to perform. What are his promises? Verse 10 to his people, he says to them three things. I will strengthen you, yes, I will help you, and I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. So God promises to do three things for them that should pacify their fears. He says, listen, you don't need to be afraid. I'm with you, and he says, I will strengthen you. I'll strengthen you. I know you're weary. I know you're weak, but God says, but I'll strengthen you in this. And he says to them, and I'm gonna help you. Oh, I don't know. How to, God says, I, that's okay. I will help you. You don't have to do it alone. In other words, God's saying you don't have to have the strength for it. And God also says, you also don't have to do it by yourself. You don't have to carry it by yourself. You don't have to figure it out by yourself. You don't have to get through it by yourself. God says, I will assist. I will help you. I'll help you in the process. Oh Lord, what if it becomes too much for me? What if it just is crushing me and it's overwhelming? God says, I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. What a wonderful thing to take for ourselves the same assurance when we need that promise from God, a God who changes not as well. When fear creeps in and we're facing something, and God says, Listen, I don't want you to be fearful. I'm with you, I'm your God. And he says, you don't have to be dismayed and, and, and frantic, he says, because I will strengthen you and I will help you and I will uphold you through this. I'll uphold you by my strong righteous right hand. Verse 11, he goes on to say, and behold, all those who were incensed against you, God says to his people, shall be ashamed and disgraced. Now he's talking about their enemies who were opposed to them and who were doing things to try and harm them god says those who were incensed in anger against you he says ultimately they shall be ashamed and they shall be disgraced god says and they shall be as nothing the idea is god would reduce them to nothing as he humbled them and broke them and put an end to the things that they had done wrong and those who strive with you god says they shall perish You shall seek them and not find them. Notice, when God deals with something, he eradicates it quite effectively. He can do that with enemies. Again, keep in mind, God here is talking about the enemies of his own people, Israel. He says, you shall seek them and not find them. The idea is God saying completely eradicated. And, you know, I would say this. If you want to take a rundown historical lane, Look at all the national people groups, all the nations that have opposed, harmed, and strongly tried to ruin and resist the nation of Israel and try and find them on a map. Try it sometime. You can't even find them on a map. And again, God does not change. He says, you shall seek them and not find them. Those who contended with you. Those who war against you shall be as nothing, God said, as a non existent thing. Again, God's assuring his people he would strongly deal with their enemies and remove them. They didn't need to fear. God would help them. He would deal with their enemies and work on their behalf to eliminate their enemies from their ruinous attempts to harm them. He says, again, verse 13 For I am the Lord your God. And I will hold your right hand saying to you, fear not, here's our second time, I will help you. Oh, Lord, my enemies and, and these people who are against me and the things they're doing and they're trying to ruin me and they're, they're going to take me down, Lord, and they're going to wreck my life. And, and, and God says, I'll deal with them. And he says, listen, I'm going to hold your hand and walk you through this. Again, I love this image here because, again, think about that very hand. What do we learn about the hand of God back in chapter 40? That God is holding all the waters of the globe in the hollow of his hand. That awesome, mighty, strong hand of God, he says, I will hold your hand. He condescends and actually holds our hand. And, again, this isn't us holding tight onto God's hand. I mean, I hope we're doing that. It's good to hold tight to God's hand, but this is more of the analogy of how if you've got a little one and you walk up to a, a, a curb on a street corner on a busy street, you're not relying on them to hold your hand, right? As the parent or as the adult or the older one, you're firmly holding onto their hand because you realize that's what's more important to ensure their welfare, their safety, and their well-being. And look, what an amazing thing to hear God say I will hold your hand. I'm going to hold your hand and walk you through this. I'm not just going to shout from a distance, you, you can handle it, you'll make it, come on. God says, I'm not going to, he's, I'm, not, I'm talking about being a cheerleader. He says, I will literally hold your hand and step by step, I will help you every hour, every minute, every day to walk you through this process. What an amazing promise of God, of not only his great power, but his wonderful, deep, and intimate love. He says, so don't let fear overwhelm you. I will help you by holding your hand and walking you through this. God will do that for you as well. Verse 14, fear not, he then says, you worm, Jacob. God's so honest. And guess what the Hebrew means? Worm. That's actually what it means. There's not a translation there. Oh, what does that say in the NIV? It should say worm, too. Worm is worm. That's what the term is. God says, you worm Jacob, you men of Israel, I will help you. There's our third phrase again. I will help you, says the Lord, and your Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel. I will make you into a new threshing sledge with a sharp teeth. You shall thresh the mountains and beat them small and make the hills like chaff. You shall winnow them. The wind shall carry them away and the whirlwind shall scatter them. The idea is like weak chaff that God would just be able to easily blow away. Now, again, I have to understand how incredibly encouraging it would be for the nation to hear God saying this to them as they're going to be coming back from the Babylonian captivity. They have no idea what's going to be their experience when they get back to Jerusalem. Only a small remnant even answered the call to be willing to go back to Jerusalem to begin to rebuild the temple and restore the home life there. Things are broken down. They're an absolute mess. There are so many obstacles in their way in front of them. And no doubt, because of spending 70 years in captivity— because of their rebellion against God, disregarding his Sabbath year command, their idolatry, all the things that got them into trouble, and consequentially made them suffer for 70 years in a foreign land, bearing the punishment and the discipline of their mistakes and their failures, guess what they're probably kind of feeling like? A worm. Right? And no doubt they're feeling like that. And look, God doesn't mince words and he says to them, fear not, you worm Jacob. Again, he calls them Jacob again, you, you unworthy people, you men of Israel. But he says, look, even though you are a worm, I will help you. Now, for a worm, that's incredible encouragement. Nobody has a pet worm we don't use worms on farms, right, to accomplish things. They're not productive, powerful animals. They're pretty weak, lowly, insignificant creatures. And God says to them, you worm Jacob, but he says, I will help you. God gives an honest assessment of their condition, but by his powerful work in the life, providing his help, what's he going to do? He's going to bring about major change in trans- tra- and transformation in their lives. Because follow what he says here. He calls them, you worm Jacob, but he says, but I will help you, says the Lord, who am your Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel. The word Redeemer, that's our our go-el phrase, the kinsman Redeemer. The idea is a kinsman, one of the flesh. And when a person in Israel, remember, got themselves into financial debt or problem or trouble, many times they would be sold into slavery or they could sell themselves into slavery, whether it was their land or even in servitude, and and there was always the opportunity, but it required a blood relative, someone of your own kinfolk, one of your blood relatives, they were able, if they were willing as an act of kindness, to pay the purchase price of redemption to redeem you back to your prior status, to redeem you out from slavery, to redeem you from your unpleasant conditions of slavery or servitude, to redeem back your land and your prior status in life. And God came, and that's why he had to come in the flesh, as Jesus did, to be our Goel, our kinsman redeemer, to redeem us from sin. He is the great redeemer. And God calls himself here to Israel in the midst of their fallen condition. He says, I am the Holy One, but I'm also your redeemer. And because I will redeem you and forgive you, he says, I'm able to not only restore you, but look at the incredible change. He says, and behold, verse 15, I'm going to make you, remember what they were, a worm, into a new threshing sledge with sharp teeth. And you're going to thresh the mountains and make the hills like chaff and winnow them and the wind will carry them away. And the idea of God saying, I'm going to take you from being a little weak, lowly, insignificant worm. And he says, by my help and redemptive power in your life, he says, I'm going to take your weak, incapable existence and I'm going to make you into a wonderful, effective, instrument that can accomplish wonderful things. And boy, what an amazing reality that God, by His love and through His power, is able to do that with lives. Truth be told, every one of us can fit ourselves right into that passage. All of our lives, you know, like weak, unworthy, incapable, insignificant worms, and yet the redemptive power... And the transforming work of God has taken our life and made us into something valuable, useful, given us productive, beneficial, fruitful lives where he can use us even as an instrument like a threshing sledge to plow the fields of God's work. And what a transformation to think of what we all were and what God can do with our lives and what he is still doing with our lives. And what a great assurance to know that no life is beyond God's transformation. It doesn't matter how lowly your status, how bad your background, how great your failures, God is able to do for us even what he did for his people here. And when he does it, notice he expects the appreciation for it. Look at the end of verse 16, and he says, and you shall rejoice in the Lord and glory in the Holy One of Israel. (laughs) So God says, when I do it, make sure you know who deserves the appreciation for it. Never lose that sense of gratitude where we would rejoice in the Lord and glory in the Holy One of Israel for what he had did in their lives and look, folks, for what he's done in our lives. If you struggle with wanting to worship, maybe you just need to go back and revisit your worm days when you were crawling around in the dirt and you were just a worthless, weak little worm and God had mercy on you and intervened and did the things he did to bring your life to where it's at now. Boy, that that should certainly make you rejoice in the Lord. I know it does me in glory in what he has done in our lives. Verse 17, he speaks of them returning back from the captivity, saying that during that time, the poor and the needy will seek water, but there is none. And as they would come back the 900 miles from the Babylonian area all the way back to Jerusalem, that long, arduous journey, it would be difficult in harsh circumstances, much like when they were traveling through the wilderness in the 40-year wandering, much of the language is picturesque. They would remember these things. So this was encouragement. He says, the poor and the needy, that is those who lack resources, those who are insufficient to address their own needs he says they seek water their tongues are failing for thirst but I the Lord will hear them I the God of Israel will not forsake them so as his people are returning God sees their lack of resources their lack of capacity but he hears their pleading for help and he says I won't ignore them in those conditions I will intervene I will not abandon them in the midst of their need I will not forsake them in fact God says I will work a straight miraculous help for them. I'll do whatever it requires to take care of them. He says, verse 18, I will open rivers in desolate heights, fountains in the midst of the valleys, and make the wilderness like a pool of water and the dry land springs of water. So very representative of what God did in the past. When they wandered in the wilderness, God said, I can do it again. I did it for your forefathers when they wandered in the wilderness for 40 years as the result of their disobedience. When they cried out, God brought water from the rock, and he provided water to quench their thirst, and he took care of them and sustained them for 40 years. And God said, look, I can do the same thing in your situation as well. Oh, Lord, I'm so poor. I'm so needy. I don't know how I'm going to get through this. I don't know how I'm going to survive. Lord, just it just seems like there's no resources and I don't have the capability. And and, and and he says, look, I can open rivers in the midst of a desert. I have the power to do whatever is necessary, God says, to bring forth fountains in the midst of the lowest valleys and make the wilderness places a pool of water And I will plant in the wilderness, he says, verse 19, the cedar and the acacia tree. The idea is miraculously like an oasis popping up. The myrtle and the oil tree, which would be necessary for other things to attend uh, to help them. I will set the desert, the cypress tree and the pine and the box tree all together. So again, God just promising that he loves his people so much that he, if need be, will even perform miraculous things to orchestrate whatever it requires to provide for his people's needs, to address their situations so that they don't find themselves abandoned, but knowing that God's involved in their situation. But notice how God always works, verse 20. He'll do this, he says, that they may see and know And consider and understand together that the hand of the Lord has done this. And the Holy One of Israel has created it. So please take notice, verse 20. God always works in such a way that it's evident that no human brought it to pass. That it was no human idea. It was no fleshly effort that accomplished it but God himself orchestrated it. So often God will purposely work in a manner whereby in the midst of what he's doing, he wants people to see him. He wants people to come to know him. And he will use even earthly circumstances and situations and how things unfold as a way to reveal his existence to people to show things to people about himself. He says that people may see and know and consider and understand the hand of the Lord has done this. Look, I hope in your life that you have at least a a thing or two or a few that you can real clearly look at of something that unfolded in your life and you can say, the hand of the Lord did that. That was nothing other than the hand of the Lord, this thing that happened in my life or the way this unfolded or how things transpired. That was the hand of the Lord who created it and made it happen. Now, God seems to conclude the chapter rebuking now the false idols that the people would wrongly turn to. He indicts them, challenging now the idols and the false gods saying to them, verse 21, "'Present your case,' says the Lord." Bring forth your strong reasons, says the king of Jacob. Let them bring forth and show us what will happen. Let them show from former things what they were. In other words, recount history to us that we may consider them and know the latter end of them or declare to us things to come. God says to the idols, if you're real, if you're worthy of being worshipped and honored like me, then why don't you do the things that I can do? Why don't you declare things that are still to come? Why don't you tell of what's coming ahead in the future? Show the things that are to come hereafter that we may know that you are God's. Yes, do good or do evil that we may be dismayed, he says, verse 23, and see it together, God says to them, indeed, you are nothing. And your work, God says, what you do to help people is nothing, and he who chooses you is an abomination so notice how god sets himself apart from the false gods and the idols he says one thing that clearly sets me apart as the one true god is god says i not only know everything about history because i've been through human history because it's my story but god says more than that i can tell you of things that are coming ahead i can tell you of things before they happen that's what prophecy is and so much of the word of god is prophetic and predictive, and one of the things that sets apart the Word of God, honestly, from any other so-called holy book in existence is no other religious book dares to predict future events. Because the first time you're wrong, you've discredited yourself. But God dares to do it again and again and again and again and again, and he's at 100% accuracy. And he continues to be at 100% accuracy. And God, because he dwells outside of the constraints of the physical realm of time and he spans everything, God can declare things that are coming years, centuries, far down the road in the future because to him it's already present. He already sees it and he already knows it. And so God sets himself apart in this manner that he can prophetically declare things to come before they come to pass. Now, knowing that God's done this and he's fulfilled it so many times, what that should do to us is that should tremendously assure us that God is reliable and the scriptures are completely credible. See, if somebody goes up to the uh, you know, baseball plate and a thousand pitches are thrown at them and they get a hit a thousand times, at a certain point, you start to go, that 1,001st pitch, I bet you they'll hit it because there's a lot of validation of a good track record, a good credit history, if you would. And it's almost as if God says, look, check my credit history, check my ratings. I've declared lots of things before they come to pass, and it's always come to pass. And so we can rest that everything that's still to come to pass, God will do it. And that's why he says of these other gods that they're nothing and the work, the help they offer is nothing. And he even gives a subtle reminder there, whoever chooses, the idea is to honor and worship one of these false gods instead of honoring God, he says, they actually themselves become an abomination. And boy, that is so true because one thing that is true, whenever someone sadly turns away from God or chooses something else to give their devotion to other than the one true and living God, ultimately their life will result in an abomination. They'll they'll self-sabotage their life. Look at every person, ourselves included, maybe before we were walking with Jesus Christ, our life was a self-sabotaged shipwreck when we were serving and worshiping and devoted to whatever it was we were devoted to as the chief master passion of our life. For some of us, it was just ourselves before we came to God. And our life was just becoming an abomination. We make a mess of it. But the wonderful thing is that when we serve the one true God, everything begins to change. He says, verse 25, speaking now to the idols saying, look, you can't do this. But then he says again, I have. In other words, I have declared things. I've raised up one from the north. Now, again, he's referring to Cyrus here because Cyrus came from the east, Persia, but he also conquered the the people, the Medes, in the north. So that's why here he refers to him as coming from the north, still Cyrus. And he shall come from the rising of the sun. He shall call on my name, and he shall come against princes as through mortar as the potter treads the clay, describing how he's predicting the coming of Cyrus, his servant, to fulfill his purposes, who has declared from the beginning that we may know, in the former times that we may say he is righteous. Surely there is no one who shows, there is no one who declares, there is no one who hears your words, God would say. The idea is in comparison to what I can do, verse 27 the first time god says i didn't even multiple attempts <laughs> people it's amazing how sometimes people make statements and predictions and then they keep changing it right the, the, the 27 times you know the i mean how many times you know 87 reasons christ will come in 87 the next year 88 reasons christ will come in 88 89 reasons christ will come in 89 i mean just at a certain point right, when you stop publishing the books of a knucklehead i mean but god says look the first time god says I said to Zion, look, there they are, and I will give to Jerusalem one who brings good tidings. Now, again, he's talking about Cyrus there. I will give to Jerusalem one who brings good news. That's Cyrus. You can write in your notes there, Ezra chapter 1, it says that God stirs the heart of Cyrus, king of Persia, and he prompts him to make a proclamation that the Jews can return back home. And this was great news as God brought it to his people because God decreed it and it came to pass. The chapter concludes saying, for I looked and there was no man. I looked among them, but there was no counselor. When I asked, could answer a word. Indeed, God says they are all worthless and their works. That is the things that they make are nothing. And their molded images are wind and confusion. Now, What seems to be described here as the chapter concludes, the language seems to indicate that God was searching for someone whom he could work through, but he found no one. He found no person who could fulfill that, and and all he saw was apathetic and distracted people who created worthless idols that, again, accomplished no help for themselves. Therefore, the implication seems to be God took matters into his own hands, and so he just resorted to, you know what, I'm so able to do what I want to do. If none of my people want to be complicit or help out and I can't find any other means, then God says, I'll just raise up a pagan king. I'll just use Cyrus to do my thing. I'll just stir his little human heart and put it in his heart to have favor towards my chosen people, Israel, and I'll make him be favorable towards them and issue a proclamation. And again, it just speaks of how, thankfully, though people may fail, God always, always, always finds ways to help his people. What a wonderful, wonderful reality. Let's stand together. We'll conclude there this evening.